Well, lectionary passage this morning comes from Psalm 133, and if you have a paper Bible or a mobile device, you're feel free to turn there. It's only three verses long, so we'll only be there for just a second. But Psalm 133, verses 1 through 3, says, How very good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down over the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord ordained His blessing, life forevermore. Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, I know that was weird, and we'll get to that in just a second, what the weird parts are. But as we begin this morning, we are going to be starting a series focused on We Are the Church. What does it mean to be the church in the world? But less specific, more specifically than even that, what does it mean to be the church, the, the little C church here at Benson Baptist? And so for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at uh, what does it mean for us to interact with one another inside this place as a faith community. And then the weeks after that, we'll be looking at what does it mean for us then to interact outside of these walls? And how are we supposed to do that? We'll be looking at things that are familiar but also things that might be a little less familiar as we move forward into a very uncertain world in which we are currently living and existing as the church. But as we begin this morning, I want to look at a specific year in history. And that year is 1920. Now, none of us in this room, and maybe very few of us online, were alive in 1920 or remember 1920 very well. If anyone was alive, I guess they'd be pretty old. So maybe no one was alive just watching right now. But it was a busy year for the United States in particular. That year, 1920, we had the first of the Red Scare raids, which took place rounding up people who were suspected of communism. And that year, we rounded up over 4,000 people to interview them and to try to figure out if they were involved. Also in 1920, the Treaty of Versailles was signed, which ended effectively World War I. The 18th Amendment to the Constitution came into effect, which prohibited alcohol sales in the United States, so prohibition. But also that year, 1920, the 19th Amendment was signed, which gave women the right to vote, which they did in their first presidential election that same year electing Senator Warren Harding as president. Now, not all of them elected President Harding, but they got to vote one way or the other. That same year, American athletes would compete in the Olympics in Germany. They would sweep that year, but they did that under what we now know as the Olympic logo. 1920 was the first year they used the interlocking rings that, we are, that are familiar to us. Of course, 1920 has been in the news a lot recently because that was the year that the Spanish flu pandemic ended after multiple waves lasting over two years. Here at Benson Baptist, that was the year, 1920, when Reverend C.C. Wheeler helped move the church from just meeting occasionally throughout the month to meeting every single Sunday. And they did that, actually, in this particular sanctuary, in this place, which had just been built a few years before. And every Sunday since then, we've been here in this place in some form or fashion. But also in 1920, here in North Carolina, a woman named Julia Lee Kelly was born. Miss Kelly is a current resident of Franklinton, North Carolina, and she just turned 100 years old, which is a feat for any person, but perhaps more notable for Miss Kelly is the family that has come along in those 100 years. In 100 years, she has had five children, 30 great-grandchildren, 
88 great-grandchildren, 49 great-great-grandchildren, and as of this year, she has one great-great-great-grandchild. That's right, Miss Kelly has lived for six generations of her family. Six generations. And some of you are nodding along and going, that sounds great. I would love to be with my family for six generations. I can't even imagine what that would be like. That would be amazing to see six generations of my family. And some of you are thinking to yourself, how would I even live through six generations with my family? I can't even imagine. I can't even think about that. That terrifies me a lot. And the reason for those two conflicting views is that sometimes family is good. We have lots of good memories and we do things together and we get along. But other times we find that family is dysfunctional, that we don't agree on everything, that we argue just as much as we uh, have good conversation together. And sometimes, some families, we only get together once or twice a year when we're obligated to at Thanksgiving or Christmas because we can't even imagine hanging out with our family the rest of the year. Family is a complex thing. It's, a, it's an interesting thing. Families have all kinds of issues that they face as we move forward, and sometimes we find ways past them, and sometimes we don't. But as we begin our service this morning and our series this morning, we're going to look at one of the biggest, longest-running families, the most dysfunctional families that exist, and that is the church. And why is the church uh, so dysfunctional, and, and why is it sometimes good? Why do we have these dueling things inside of our own places, and what can we do about that? How do we move forward into the future that is the church, especially in uncertain times, when we have these issues, when we have these things that go on, and when we have these good moments, how do we balance those things together? Well, Psalm 133 is a poem from ancient Israel, and it has a little bit to say about what it means to be the family that are the people of God. But a lot of us are hard-pressed when we think about this in context of our family of Christ, our community of Christ, to get past verse 1. Because verse 1 in Psalm 133 calls us to unity above all else. And as we look at our lives today and the history of the church and maybe even our own experiences here at Benson Baptist, we begin to think to ourselves, well, there have been some times we haven't been very unified because unity is difficult. And how do we remain unified moving forward whenever, whenever bad things happen or whenever we disagree about how something should be done or when we disagree about how something is happening in the world. And I think we get caught up on this because our definition of unity is often tied into our definition of uniformity. When we say, how do we move forward unified as a people, as a family, we get tripped up because we think, well, we can't be unified. We'll never all agree on everything. We'll never all look the same. We'll never all sound the same. We'll never all vote the same. We'll, we'll never all read the Bible exactly the same. And so we get tripped up on this and we say, well, there can never really be unity in the church because we can never all land on the same page. And that's true in many ways that we won't ever all land on the same page. And, and when we look at the church, the, the larger church, especially in our nation, we begin to see that, that this search for unity seems almost impossible. As of today, there are over 200 registered Christian denominations just in the United States. That doesn't count outside of our nation. Over 200 different denominations. These aren't churches. These are denomination bodies of groups, churches getting together that say we are Christian. 
Those denominations are divided over everything from worship style. Do we have guitars and drum sets or do we have organs and pianos? To how we read the Bible, to how, what we believe about Jesus, to what does it mean when we baptize? And do we do it with infants and sprinkle as they're born, as they're christened? Or do we dunk people in the baptistry? We even disagree about what happens at the, the Lord's table when we take communion, we take the Eucharist together. Is it, is it really becoming the body and blood of Jesus or is it a symbol of the body and blood of Jesus? What, what even happens there and who can even take communion? But as we dig down a little deeper, of those 200 denominations, 33 of them identify as Baptist. Just in the United States, 33 different Baptist denominations. Of course, we are a part of one of those. And inside of those 200 denominations, there are over 338,000 individual Christian congregations in the United States. I think most of them are on the same road together in every little town. But 338,000 Christian churches in the United States. And while we, when we sit in here on Sunday mornings, don't pay a lot of attention to the fact that there's that many out there and that there's that many different people saying we're Christian and we're a church and we're going to be part of this denomination, we don't think about that that much. I think in the back of our minds, sometimes it makes us feel like unity in the body of Christ is not ever going to be possible. Because if we have divided so many times since Jesus was here that there are just in our nation 200 different denominations then what does that mean for us moving forward? Well, as we dig down even further and look here at Benson Baptist, and I've only been here for almost eight months, but I can say this with pretty good certainty. We have Republicans in our congregation. We have Democrats in our congregation. We have everything in between those two things in our congregation. We have some that are unaffiliated from all of them. We have self-identified theological conservatives, we have self-identified theological liberals. We have self-identified theological moderates. We have self-identified, I don't know what I am. Bigger and more dividing than even those two realities, we have Carolina fans and state fans and Wake Forest fans and for some reason fans of the other school that has a beautiful chapel but really ugly sports teams. We have people of different socioeconomic statuses, people who grew up and said, you know, I barely had anything growing up. I would identify as poor. And we have people who would never even have thought of using that label. We have people of different generational experiences. We have Generation X. We have millennials. We have baby boomers. We have everything in between and whatever the next generation is going to be. And most of them all live in my house. But we have quite a few different people who've experienced life differently. We have generations in our church that could never have imagined carrying a phone in their pocket, much less taking it off the wall. And we have generations of people in our church who have never known not carrying a cell phone in their pocket, able to access the internet when they can't, when they can. And so in other words, even on a micro level here at Benson Baptist, uniformity seems about as far away as anything else. And when we tie our definition of unity into uniformity, it makes it even harder to think that we will ever be unified, even here in this place. The reality of it is, is that we're not called to uniformity. When we come together as the body of Christ, we're not called to agree on every single thing. And if you look back through church history, all the way back to Scripture, you'll find that's true. Even in Acts, Peter, who followed Jesus closely and was one of Jesus' closest disciples, and Paul, who carried Christianity throughout the Roman Empire, 
In Acts, they actually have an argument over who should be taking the Gospel. They don't even agree on this to the point where Peter just says, okay, you know what? Paul, you can go and tell the Gentiles, the non-Jews, about Jesus. We're going to stay here and focus on the Jewish Christians, the people who are going to stay Jewish and follow Jesus as well. And so they kind of agree to disagree. They say, we're not going to be uniform on this. We can move forward together, sharing the Gospel as we move forward. There's even moments in Paul's letters where he's saying he's talking about people who are sharing the Gospel, and they're not doing it in the way that he thinks that they should. But he says even in those places, no matter, even if I don't agree with them, at least the Gospel is being shared. At least people are hearing about Jesus. And so, even to the very beginnings of the Christian church, uniformity has never been fully the case. But unity has been there all along. But if it's so difficult to find, why even look for it? Why even go after unity? Why even strive for it? We learn that in our passage from Psalm 133 in those weird parts that we read. And the first thing we learn is that living together in unity is a holy act. Verse 2 has this this weird kind of thought of, of this guy named Aaron having oil put on his head and it runs down his face and it gets caught in his beard and drips off his beard onto his robes. And you may be reading that and going, what in the world was the psalmist thinking that day when they were writing this poetry? But when you know the backstory, and some of you do, Aaron was the brother of Moses and Aaron was the first high priest of Israel. And so the anointing of Aaron was literally anointing him to be a priest, a member of the priestly group of people, a set-apart group who had certain policies and certain rules that they followed. It it set them apart from everyone else. And so when you read Psalm 133 with that understanding, you begin to see that unity in the body means that we find ourselves set-apart. We find ourselves different from the rest of society in many ways in the fact that we can come together. We can work across our differences and be one body and one unified people as we move forward. But what does this mean holistically? Well, as we move forward as the body of Christ, it means it is holy when we live counterculturally to the me, me, me society in our world. When we find a holy place where we walk together, where we focus on other people, where we care about people even before ourselves sometimes, where we say it's not all about me, it's about us together. It's holy when we bear one another's burdens or mourn with one another, when we're sad or when we're grieving the loss of someone else, or when things aren't going so great in our lives, when we hold each other up as some of us prepare to send our kids to school virtually or otherwise tomorrow. It's, it's coming together and saying, you're not alone in that. I understand what's going on. For me, recently, as my brother has been diagnosed with cancer and dealing with that, it's, it's been all of you reaching out and, and saying, hey, I just want you to know I'm thinking of you. I'm praying for you. It's you commenting on every Facebook update, even though I'm kind of like, maybe these people are tired of hearing it. But then you remind me that you're not tired of hearing it because you want to know what's going on. You want to be called up. It's holy when we come together in that way. It's also holy when we come together and we laugh together and we share moments of joy together. It's holy when we share who we really are, when we come into this body of believers and we say, this is what I really believe. Or these are the questions I really have. And we know in that moment we're not going to be shut down. We're not going to be judged for that. We're going to be told, you know what, I don't agree with you, but I'm going to walk with you in this life to to see where we can figure out where God is in this and what God is really calling us to do. 
It's holy when we, regardless of where we come from, what we believe, or even in this year how we vote, that we love one another. That we come together to foster change in a world that needs it. When we look across all of those differences that out in society seem to separate people to the farthest ends of the world and say, as the body of Christ, we're going to find ways to work together in spite of those things. And you know what happens when we do that well? We're set apart enough that people look at us and they go, wait a minute, that's different. And I want to be a part of that. I want to be in a place where everything isn't so divisive that we can't come together. I want to be in a place where I can say who I am and what I'm thinking and people will listen and people will talk through that with me and people will share where they are. And even if it's in disagreement, we'll walk away from that place having handled the conversation with grace and with love. We'll figure out how to change the world together. Lastly, it is holy when we seek unity with people even when they disagree with us and even before, maybe if they ever, agree with us. American priest and theologian Thomas Merton once said, if we wait for some people to become agreeable or attractive before we love them, we will never begin loving them in the first place. And so sometimes to find unity in the church, we have to be set apart. We have to live differently. We have to do things differently. And when we do, it will change the world. But that second weird thing from our psalm this morning teaches us that living together in unity is also life-giving. Verse 3 talks about dew falling down a mountain and nourishing what's there. And if you don't know where the psalmist lived, then it wouldn't make as much sense to you to read this. You would just think it's weird poetry. But this simile in particular is talking about a place where it was very hot. And during the dry season, there was no rain. There was very little precipitation that was coming. And so in their time, really the only precipitation they got came from the mountain, came from the dew that settled in the morning. And it was just enough, they were able to capture it enough, and they had ways of doing that, that they could water their crops, that they could have things coming uh, to give them life, that their vines would be there so they could make a livelihood. It was life-giving to them. And the psalmist says, finding unity as the people of God is like that. It's like life in the midst of a barren desert. It's like their hope in the midst of everything that is going on. In other words, the psalmist is saying when you come together as one body, even across differences, even across disagreements, it will be life-giving in the world. It will, it will show people that there is still hope. It will show people that there is still grace. And more than that, when you come together in that way, no matter what the world may throw at you, even the fear of death, because... There's no water coming and you can't grow crops and how are you going to live? You'll still have hope because you'll hold one another up together. You'll walk through life together and that is life-giving, knowing that you are never alone no matter what you face. So friends, as we try to figure out what does it mean to be the church moving forward, we have to recognize there are differences. Both on a capital C church across the world, obviously there are way more than 200 Christian denominations in our world when you back out of the United States, but, but even here at Benson Baptist, even in this particular year, I remember back in February and March when COVID first came into, onto the scene and people were saying, this will bring us together. Maybe for the first time in a very long time, this will bring us together in a global sense, but, but especially on a national sense, because any time in recent history that we have faced a, a nationwide changing thing, we've come together and we've found a way to care for one another. The reality of it is, a few months later, we know that the pandemic did not bring us together in the way that we thought. And regardless of what you believe or don't believe about certain things, 
All you have to do is get on Facebook and you'll see that not everybody agrees with you about how you're viewing that. And not everybody has been brought together in this. Beyond that, we've had all kinds of other things that have divided us in this year. And it doesn't appear that this is going to be any less of a divisive year as we move forward. Because anytime we have a major election, we find dividing lines drawn everywhere. And we haven't gotten to November yet. So I imagine as we move forward, there's going to be even more division. But as the people of Christ coming together, we have to see that what Scripture teaches us and what the history of the church coming together teaches us is that inside of this place, inside of this body, we can and we will and we should expect to disagree on a lot of things we should not be divided on. What we should not disagree on is that we are called to be united in our love for one another, in our love for our neighbor, and our call to show grace in the midst of division, to, to hold the tension between us with grace. And above all that, no matter what comes ahead of us, to have hope for tomorrow and hope for the day after tomorrow. To say to the world, no matter what we face, we believe in Jesus. We believe in a Savior that has told us that as we move forward from this place, no matter what we face ahead, there will still be hope. And that hope has walked with the Church of Christ for a very long time. As Christians were being killed for their faith. As they have faced pandemics before. As churches have faced financial ruin or scandal or other things. All along the way, the hope of Christ has somehow persevered. And as they've come together in unity as one body moving forward, we've seen the church survive. And this year is no different. Next year will be no different. The year after that will be no different. The world will always find ways to divide us because that's the nature of who we are. We will never agree on everything. We'll never look and sound and agree on, uniformly on the same things. But as the body of Christ following after Jesus, we have to proclaim that Jesus has something to say, that we believe that Jesus can change this world as we live out our faith, and that there is hope for tomorrow. And that we are going to love people no matter what happens. Now that doesn't mean that as we look at what it means to be the church, we don't call each other out occasionally on things that need to be called out. It doesn't mean that we don't hold each other accountable. Scripture is full of all kinds of parts where it says, keep one another honest. Make sure you're living out the, the faith that you're supposed to be living out. Make sure when people are looking at you or looking at your church that they see Christ in that. It doesn't mean that we won't have difficult times. It doesn't mean that our conversation sometimes won't almost get to the argumentative stage. But it does mean at the end of it all, we continue to follow Jesus who was a person of grace. And we see the privilege that it is to walk together. German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, it is not simply to be taken for granted that the Christian has the privilege of living among other Christians. Often as we try to answer the question, what does it mean to be the church? We don't see it as a privilege. We see it as some, some of us, something we have to do. We have to go to church. We have to go to worship. We have to sit together. But we also find that at the first major disagreement that people face, they walk out the door and they say, I guess that wasn't worth my time. I'm going to go find a different place to go and worship or I'm not going to worship at all. That's because we sometimes take for granted what it means to be able to worship together, to sit together, to talk about faith together, to disagree even about our faith together, and to, to ask tough questions to sharpen one another. Sharpening one another, as Scripture says, it doesn't just mean you're telling each other what we want to believe. It sometimes means you're trying to, to hone in on what people believe and, and where they are in life 
and you're, you're sharpening each other as, one per, as iron sharpens iron, as another person sharpens another person. It means sometimes saying, I disagree with you, but I'm not saying you're wrong. I want to talk about it. Let's figure that out. Let's name our biases and figure out how we can move forward together. And so as we move forward from this place today, may we claim the privilege of being able to walk in this life together. May we see that it can be holy and it can be life-giving and it can be a full life when we find ways, not in uniform ways to walk together, but in unified ways to walk together where we say Jesus still has something to say and we know that we can do far more together than we ever can apart moving forward. And as we do all of that, may we hear the promise of Psalm 133.3 that says, when you find ways to be unified together, there the Lord ordains His blessing. And His blessing is life and life forevermore. Amen.